Some days are terrible, you wish that you were dead And some days are magical, like great banana bread Someday we'll be friends with the voices in our heads The voices in our heads Hello everybody and welcome to The Voices in Our Heads I'm Christina Hutchinson and congratulations on not killing yourself Congratulations on not taking your own life off of this awful planet and you stayed here. I'm really proud of you because it's hard. It's not easy. Being dead is better. But if you commit suicide, fun little fact that I learned from all these near-death experience videos and why I'll never commit suicide is that if you do, you're kind of cheating the system and you have to do your life all over again. Maybe in like a different country or whatever, but like you have to like meet the same people. And it's like, could you imagine what would make you want to kill yourself more? The idea of how... Well, it would not make me want to kill myself. The idea of killing myself, meaning I had to redo. I had to meet Nancy and Edward again. And I had to go, oh, you love me? You're the best. And then I had to realize later that they didn't. So don't kill yourself. And congratulations on surviving. Happy New Year. Happy 2024. We took a little two-week hiatus. And now we're back. Okay? I've seen a lot of movies lately. I have so much to tell you. But I'm going to try to keep this episode of 45 minutes like I try every time. We'll see. Will I fail? Probably. I don't know. Um, but I did see a bunch of movies uh, over the break since I've, we've last spoken. And man, some of them sucked, but a lot of them were great. Okay. And I we won't harp on the sucky ones. I'm just going to give you the great ones. Go. So go see Poor Things. Just that's the one I want you to see. That one's so good. Yo, that movie, I love a weird horny girl who can't stop rubbing her clit. I just, I like, I love a weirdo female character who just wants to fuck everything all the time and d- truly doesn't care. That's a very rare thing, you know? It's like me when I discovered masturbation at an um, eerily young age, but whatever. Um, you, you find it when you find it. Or maybe it finds you. I don't know. Um, but... Emma Stone was magnificent in it. And it's such a weird movie. Oh, my God. It's exactly why I want to make an I want to buy a building in Manhattan or Brooklyn, probably because it's cheaper and convert it into an immersive theater venue where every floor of the apartment building is a is a different theme under the main themes umbrella. And every unit on that floor is an even deeper, more specific dive into that theme. Um, But uh, poor things is amazing. Rami Youssef. Good on you, boo. He's a stand-up comedian. I was so proud to see him in that movie. Um, that was really cool to see one of us, you know, a stand-up comedian. Uh, Robbie's been on TV for a while, and he's been crushing it for a while. So it makes sense that tra- the trajectory is this incredible movie role uh, alongside Emma Stone. I mean, Emma Stone is just magnificent. And then you see Mark Ruffalo's butt in it. Oh, girl. Girl. I love Mark Ruffalo. I think he's so hot. I think he's one of the hottest people on the planet. And one time I was in a fancy grocery store in Los Angeles. It was one of my first Los Angeles trips. And I forget what they're called. Like, it was like Alf's or Ralph's or something. It wasn't Ralph's, but it was something like that. Maybe it was Ralph's. Anyway, we were buying apple. My friend and I were buying all these apples for an apple juice cleanse because we were doing a colonic. And apparently the apples were on sale, but we didn't have a Ralph's card. And then I got a tap on my shoulder. And he's like, hey, you want to use my Ralph's card? And it was fucking Mark Ruffalo. And I was like, you want to use my pussy for your penis? <laughs> and he said, do you want my card or not? And I said, no. No, just kidding. I said, yes. I said, yes, Mark Ruffalo. Give me your card. 
Woo! And then you just saw his butt in Poor Things, and it was great. You saw him, him and Emma Stone had a lot of sex. They did it a lot. Basically, and I'm going to give you some spoilers, but uh, whatever. Whenever somebody's like, I don't want to give you spoilers, you know that there's only a couple movies out there that there's this one part about it that is the absolute spoiler. And if you and if you give that away, you're giving the whole thing away. And it's like, why see it? But this is not really, in my opinion, a spoiler. Um, she just has a lot of hot sex with Mark Ruffalo. And she in the film, she discovers basically coming. She discovers having an orgasm and she's like, oh, my God. Why don't people do this all the time? And I'm like, girl, that's what I'm saying. Thank you. Um, so that was just, it was, the movie was so good. And whenever I see a movie in the theaters, it, I have such bad ADD that I cannot watch a movie at my house because then I'll see like a, like part of the kitchen that needs to be cleaned and I'll just fucking go clean it. And I'll just get up in the middle of the movie and just start doing something else. But when you're in a movie theater, it's all dark. Ain't nothing to do. If you're on your phone, you're shamed. If you talk, you shame. I love that. Shame has a place. Shame me if I do those inappropriate things at a movie theater. And I'll shame you back, okay? Because we got to help each other. But um, it's just, you're able to focus so much. So whenever I see a movie in the theater, I, I get locked into the world of the film, especially if I love the movie, for the next, like, four hours so I like after I go to the, when you go to the bathroom and after you see a movie and the lights are all hospitally and you're like, oh, and like you feel like Emma Stone and you start walking like your legs are wooden, you know, and then you're like, should I hump the toilet? And you're like, no, I'm not going to do that. But I did thought about it because Emma Stone's character did it. And I was still in the world of the movie, you know, um, it's just I love that. I love, 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 love that movie. And I think you should see it in the theater. Seeing a movie in the theater is way better um, because then you can't clean anything in your house. I don't know if you guys know this, but I talk to birds a lot. I talk to animals a lot. And apparently it's not a mental illness. It just means I'm very empathic towards animals. That's great news, honestly. Um, but there's a goose. I, I'm a runner now. I don't know if you heard from the last episode I did with Ollie, but I'm a runner now. I like run. Okay. I like put on my running shoes and go jogging because I'm like better than you. And at least I think so. And... I can't believe that I like it. I'm really shocked. Didn't think I was going to be a runner. Thought I was a blader. Really thought I was a blader. Turns out, though, like the Wim Hof breathing techniques, I don't know if you guys have ever done those. Basically, you just go for a long time, and then you hold, the, then you do the breath out, and then you hold the breath. Go on YouTube. There's a bunch of tutorials for free. It's really great. But you kind of do the Wim Hof breathing when you run for an extended period of time. I'm only running like two and a half miles, but it's not bad. A five, I'm almost close to a 5K. And there's a goose in my neighborhood that's called Gary, that I call Gary. Well, Colin called him Gary. And then I was like, yeah, that's a Gary for sure. Um, and he just sits there on one area of the lawn that we jog by and he's always there and he'll talk to you. So I first met Gary after a run and I was just very tired and couldn't believe I ran. I was kind of shocked. And so, and I was very out of breath. And so I just like, like, fell back onto the lawn and I was lying on my back on the lawn and this goose comes over to me and was like, yo, what's up? And I was like, oh, word? What up, dog? And we were talking. I don't know what he said, but we were, we were talking, we were saying stuff with our eyes and, um, and I really, ha I, I grew a love for this goose and we named him Gary and now every time I run, <clears throat> I got my boyfriend for Christmas. Uh, one of the things I got him was a bird feeder to stick outside your window with suction cups and I got him off of Amazon a bag of bird seed that I thought was like the size of 
like this book, if you're watching at home, which you won't be until left when this episode comes out, but, um, you know, like a book size birdseed, bag of birdseed. This is a large book. And it turns out I got him a 10 pound bag of birdseed. Didn't really mean to do that. I always, on Amazon, you just, you don't, you don't look at the size. You're like, oh, it's birdseed. Just get it. And then you're like, I'm not, I don't live on a bird farm. Oops. Yeah. So, um, so I bought him too much birdseed. So I was like, fuck it. Can goose have birdseed? I looked it up. It said, yeah. And then I took some birdseed. So now every time I go running, I have a little Ziploc baggie in my, in my fanny pack. And uh, me and Gary, after that, my reward for running, after, you know, in addition to, oh, my God, I ran. I'm the best. Like, that's a pretty great reward. That mental reward that you get there. Um, and it's hanging out with Gary. And got to say, the last two times I ran, Gary wasn't there. And I'm pissed about it. And I'm like, Gary, where are you going? Where are you, where are you going, Gary? If you're listening to this, if you're listening to this, Gary, come back. I see you from my window hanging out with the lawn people. The meaning not like gnomes, but the people that like tend the lawn in the neighborhood. It sounded like I said gnomes. Uh, so yeah, I miss Gary. Oh, <laughs> I wrote this down. Sometimes do- some dogs are too small. Some some of y'all bitches out here in New York City are carrying dogs. Just get a cat. If you're gonna, it's like they took a Chihuahua and they microwaved it and they shrunk it down. And this, like, a dog should not be able to fit in a coffee cup, okay? That's a squirrel. That's not a, that's not even a cat. That's a squirrel, okay? That might not even be a squirrel. But there, these bitches have dogs that I'm like, I don't know what you're genetically doing to modify these dogs. Because keep in mind, kids, every dog on this planet is a descendant of wolves, okay? I looked it up. I talked about it in my stand-up, but I looked it up because I talk about it in my stand-up. And I'm like, I can't just be spewing bullshit. But human beings befriended dogs hundreds of thousands of years ago, bred them to get all the dog breeds that we have today for various purposes. Like Kevin, my miniature Dachshund, was bred to hunt muskrats. Now, I don't think he was, they didn't breed the mini until much later. And I know I'm about to get on y'all for having dogs that are too small. Kevin is small, okay? He's, He's bigger than a chihuahua, but he's very small. But I'm, in the last three days, I've seen sorry, women with dogs that are like the size of my fucking hand. And it looks like a chihuahua, but its eyeballs are popping out of its head and it's freezing fucking cold. It's so, they're so cold because they have, they barely have bones because they shouldn't be a dog. Okay. That's a rat. That's a rat that needs to be staying in a cage with a light, a heat light on it. Why, why y'all getting dogs that are, that are truly, you shrunk them. It's honey. I shrunk the dog, New York City style, and I don't. I don't know where we's getting these dogs. I'm assuming a breeder, but I don't even know how this dog can give birth. That's that's, that's that tiny. The bo- the hips look. It just looks bad. Okay, so I've seen like yeah, I've seen about three Chihuahuas in the past week that are frightening, frighteningly tiny, and I just I'm worried about their organs. Um, but anyway, Gary and I had a magical bond. And then he fucking said, you know what? I don't need you. And I was like, well, maybe you migrated. You know, maybe maybe Gary migrated to good old Florida. Uh, and then turns out I was in my living room yesterday, the day after I ran. And I was like, Gary must have migrated. And Gary was fucking talking to the lawn guy. And I was like, you attention whore. I have seed, Gary. 
And you liked it because you ate it from my hand. Anyway. Oh, man. I was watching this docuseries on... Um, on vegetarian uh, veganism versus an omnivore diet. It's called You Are What You Eat. It's on Netflix. It's a docu-series. And woo! Yo, I don't eat beef or pork. And it's not, it's not because of the animal thing in terms of like, I don't want an animal to be killed. I also don't want that because have you ever hung out with a fucking cow? They're magnificent. They are so cute. And so sweet and so gentle and so gigantic. And you're like, God damn, dude. Sorry we milk you all day. And then, so this documentary shows you what happens to these animals, like what conditions they live in before you eat them, which is, ugh, I don't even want to fucking think about it. Um, but I do think if you do eat beef and pork, you should have to at least one time kill the fucking animal before you eat it. Just try it. Just try it and see if you still want to eat it. Or... Take a tour of a beef factory. I guarantee you, man, you're not going to want to eat that shit afterwards. It is so sad what the animals have to live through before they die. And beef is just not, pork is not, it's not great for you. Like what it does to your body. So the stocky series goes through, they take sets of twins and they make one go on an omnivore diet and one go on a vegan diet. But the diets are relatively healthy. Like they're not eating shit. They're eating, you know, pretty healthy food. But one is including meat and one is vegan. And man, the twin that was the vegan had a lot of areas of their health that were way better. And this was only in eight weeks, okay? And you're like, ugh, all right, you sold me. You sold me. And well, one of the things they did throughout the series while these twins were kind of like going around their vegan or omnivore lifestyle was uh, they were telling you where your food comes from. And America's food sources are both, like, this is some horseshit, man. This is, America, everyone wants to come here and I get why. I get it. I've been to other countries. I go, okay, yeah, I like this better. But our food and our healthcare blows, dude. It fucking blows. It's so bad. It's such a joke. It's so gaslighty and disgusting. And one of the, one of the main things, like, it's so fucked for a country to have these poisonous food sources that are legal. And then you have to pay so much money for healthcare and your health is so bad because you eat such shit food, which I you can't all blame on the person. Like governments are actually supposed to help people live better and are supposed to like be like, how can we make the people of our country happier and more whole? And but guess what? Happy and whole people don't want to buy shit. So in America, we're going to make you sad and fat. And uh, those people want to buy shit. And it's just it's just this gross cycle. But this this docuseries is a very interesting look. On where on fish farms, yo, fish farms, that shit's fucked up. Oh my god, it's so gross. When you, I remember, I'm gonna name drop here, okay? Sorry, but I can because I've met some pretty famous people, and I want to brag about it because what's the fucking point of not bragging about it? Um, over quarantine, my friend Justin Silver and I went. He's friends with a famous photographer named Stephen. And Stephen knows this lady named Madonna, and we met her over COVID. We met her at a party, but we had to go to this party. We were going to a party. It was just a very tiny. It was just Stephen, Madonna, me, and Justin, and Madonna's family. We had to go to this. We wanted to go to the store and help out and get some food. And I remember he was like, "You have to get organic, wild caught." And I rolled my eyes. I gotta be honest. I rolled. I'm like, "Oh my god, these fucking famous rich people just want organic everything." But dude, I'll never roll my eyes at that again because if the op. 
if it the fish isn't wild caught, that pretty much means it's in a fish farm and it's swimming in its own shit. Because I thought fish was safe. You know, I thought fit, I didn't have to be like picky about the fish I ate. <laughs> I totally get going vegan now. I get it. I'm going to try it. I'm going to try going vegan. And if you are a vegan person and you have some good recipes, because look, vegans, some of y'all, you're annoying as shit. Okay. You're annoying about being vegan and you push it on people and it makes me want to take two hot dogs and go right in your fucking face and just eat it and go like Emma Stone and pour things with the apple. Just, okay. That's, and so stop being annoying. And because not only is being vegan better for your body and it's better for the animals that are not sacrificed and forced to live in horror. Okay. But the methane gas that comes from cows, like cow farms, contributes to more uh, of the ozone um, um, downfall of our ozone layer than traffic. That's insane. Like, and then I looked it up because I didn't believe it. And the dog was like, no way. That's fucking insane. Because cows burp and fart. And those burps and farts and shits, they go into the air. And because we eat so much beef and we drink so much milk, we, this all this shit is going into the air. If we all, I mean, the stats are so staggering that it should be illegal to touch a cow. That I'm like, you guys, look at look around, look at this past year. Okay, I know everybody's talking about global warming, and it's annoying. Oh, it's so annoying. But you know what else is annoying? Slowly dying because your ozone layer is fucked up because people are eating hamburgers at McDonald's. Okay, it's such an easy way to prevent global warming. Make it illegal to touch a cow. It's illegal. You don't need milk. You got titties. And if you're not going to drink the tit, your milk from your mother, that means you're too old for milk. Every animal in the wild drinks milk from its mother for a, a, the amount of time that it needs to. And then they go off and they kill a zebra or whatever they do. And then everything's great. That's a mammal that drinks milk from its mother. Not obviously birds. That'd be cool, though. Could you imagine a bird with an udder? That's kind of cool. If there is a poor things part two, they should do birds with udders. I fucking love that movie so much. Anyway, this this movie, um, this docuseries about going vegan, you are what you eat. It's really interesting. And I want to try it. And look, it's an it's I don't know. I'm not gonna be able to be hundred percent vegan. And they do address a lot of my concerns, I think the typical person's concerns with the whole vegan shit. Which is like, you know, cheese. Lo- we love cheese. But when you realize that the everything in America, as I get older, I'm like, oh, I get it now. Okay. And then you look it up and you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah that is true. Everything in America is for profit. It's all capitalism. It's all capitalism. So when you do and look this up yourself, don't take my word for it. Look it up. If it, if it, if it, if it's so, you know, if it, if you fancy looking this up, look it up. But the dairy industry is made the food pyramid. So the dairy industry made it so that every meal you have should have a pro should have a glass of milk and a fucking piece of protein that's meat related. But we don't actually need that. No, we have been like groomed to believe that a meal and it seeped into the pretty much every culture. I mean, Jesus Christ, when you go to a restaurant Every meal is a protein of some meat kind and then vegetables and then a starch. 
but it doesn't got to be that way. You could eat just like mad grains and fruits and veggies and shit and be totally fine. And I know sometimes like red meat and protein like is vital for people's for people's functionality, but you you don't need to eat it every day. So and look, I don't want to be one of those annoying vegan people. I'm first of all, I'm not vegan. <laughs> I'm not um, because I eat. There's too much shit I eat that has butter in it, you know, and if you go to th- a Thanksgiving meal. I mean, don't be vegan at Thanksgiving, you know. I like I get it. I get the try. I get why a vegan. I do. Unfortunately, I do get why you're all um, a lot of you. Not all of you, but a lot of you are annoying as hell. I get it. I get it because it is a good thing to be. It's better for your body, and it's so much better for the planet. It's insane that I'm like, why don't we have laws around touching? We we should it should be illegal to touch cows. Okay, it should be illegal to touch a cow. Um. So I get it. And it's I get like you can't go to a dinner party and be like, I'm I'm vegan. So like no butter. And it's like, oh, go fuck yourself, you know. So I'll I will never personally be 100 percent vegan ever in my life, I'm sure. Um, because when you're in, up to situations like that, you're like, just fucking eat the cookie with the butter that has milk in it. OK, did you use cashew butter? Go fuck yourself. How about that? You know what I mean? So I think if we strike a balance like that and we just all I'm saying is. Look, you don't have to take anything I say seriously at all. But what I'm saying is if you do eat red meat, just eat a little less of it. Because my God, the diabetes, the fucking cholesterol, the blood pressure, all this shit is affected by it. It's crazy. Can you tell I'm in my 30s because I'm thinking about this stuff? When am I when I was in my 20s, I'm like, we're never gonna die. Let's do math. Who cares? And I could go out and party and get hung over. And then just jog the next day because I was fucking 20. Okay. How much time we got? We doing what? 25 minutes? 21. Oh, so close. You know what time it is? You know what time it is, y'all? It's time for some fuck boy a theater. <laughs> oh, man. Um, hello. Welcome back to NPR's Fuckboy Theater. This week, we're going to be reading a conversation that took place on Hinge in 2023 between a perfect angel woman named, we're not going to say her name, and this piece of shit named, I'm actually not going to say his name either because it's very unique. And if I'm being honest, I don't know how to pronounce it. But I also don't want to out him if it's the only person by this name. Okay. All right, guys. This is just a quickie on a dating app conversation. And uh, (laughs) here we go. Okay. So they matched. She liked his photo. It's a handsome photo, to be fair. And then, okay, they matched. And then he says his first message to her on this dating app. I thought I was always blessed because poetry and philosophy had merged somewhere along my path and I was saved from the dark luring claws, lurking claws of nihilism in the communist dystopian gray morning of my life. Such a pleasure to meet a kindred spirit. Hope you're doing well, Rita. And scene. <laughs> Don't be saying that shit to women. What the fuck is people's problems? Oh, my God. <laughs> Men, 
I will say, on Guys We Fucks, I don't think this episode, I think it's coming out on Luminary this week, whatever. You, you just go on your internet and see what's happening. But um, uh, Demona Hoffman is a, is a woman that we um, interviewed. That was, it was a great interview. She is a dating, um, like a dating coach, but she specifically works with helping you curate your dating app profile. And I got to say, as I came into this interview with her kind of like, ah, you know, all these hems and haws over online dating and how it's ruining, um, you know, our our humanness. It's it's contributing to that, like much like everything on our phone that keeps us on our phone for more than 10 minutes. And she she really did a great job. I give her a lot of credit at turning my um, shitty attitude towards online dating completely around. And now I'm like, I want to get out there. I'm not single. But like if I was, I would fucking be happy to get out there. And one of the one of the takeaways she said, that I'll just give you as a little preview, but you got to listen to the full episode, is the dating app is the the gateway to the date. Don't think of it as any more than that and do not spend a lot of time chatting on the dating app or chatting over text. Get to the fucking date. And I was like, yeah, she didn't say fucking I added that. I'm trying to curse less in 2024. <sighs> um, get to the date. And I totally agree. And so uh, don't be dilly-dallying on those dating apps, guys. Okay, I'm talking to you person's message i just read what what a jerk um oh you know what i don't want to you know i do want to omit this i was gonna say i don't want to omit this but i actually do um because i'm wrong about stuff all the time <laughs> oh, oh guys i'm wrong about stuff <laughs> all but like a lot okay because i go off of my emotions and a lot of times my emotions are incorrect but a lot of times they are correct um, but this was, um, I had a couple people DM me about this person that I discovered and I was really excited about, and I don't think he's a hundred percent full of shit, but I, he at least is a little bit full of shit. Uh, Joe Dispenza. I talked about him a lot and I don't think that he, like I said, I think there's things that he's done that are really pretty great. But, um, we watched a video. This guy was like debunking Dr. Joe Dispenza. Um, he calls himself a doctor, but he's a chiropractor. <laughs> You're not, that's not a doctor, baby boy. Um, and then they went through why being a chiropractor is not actually a like a doctor doctor, like a medical doctor. Um, obviously you are um manipulating the spinal mus- muscles and tissues and stuff and bones, but chiropractor is, is kind of a new a newer profession, I guess, and you don't really earn the title of doctor. And it got, the video goes into all these reasons why Joe is full of crap. So I was like, oh, okay. I still I, I'm I'm willing to bet there's still some areas that he got right and that are really interesting and that he's discovered. But, you know, sometimes people are also full of crap. Can't everybody be perfect? Can't everybody be perfect? Oh, man, those fucking Epstein, that Epstein document dump. I've been waiting for that for a while. I'm like, what famous men are on it that we can shame? Um, turns out it's not a name of everybody who's um, had sex with a, a raped a minor um, on Epstein's Island, like we were kind of led to believe by the newspapers, even though they eventually, when the documents finally came out, they were like, guys, just so you know, this isn't like a, a who's who, like, this isn't like a, this isn't like a list like that. I'm like, really? Cause you've been telling me it's going to be a list like that for the past month. And I've been very excited. And now it's not. And now we just know that yes, Bill Clinton had sex with minors. Allegedly, Chad. Um, we already knew that. And Prince Andrew had sex with Virginia when she was under 18, three times. We already knew that. And Pr- Prince Andrew, I hate you, okay? I hate anyone who has sex with girls. 
um, who are underage because that's fucked up and you're taking advantage of um, somebody's vulnerability and there's a special place in hell for you. Hell isn't real, but I wish it was just for you. <laughs> okay. Um, oh, and, I, and then, oh God, guys, I didn't even tell you all. There's so many things I want to tell you that I'm not, I'm not going to get to because I want this episode to be 45 minutes um, and it's going to be. How are we at time? Where are we at? 27, 28 minutes. Okay. There is hope. There is hope. Um, I had my first ever really great Christmas. Well, second. But this was my favorite. This is one of my favorite Christmases. Uh, again, much like Thanksgiving, one of the keys, for me anyway, no family. Zero members of your own family present. Absolutely none. Zero, zero, zilch. Do it with somebody else's family. Preferably your boyfriend that you love. Because I can deal with another family. Every family, I think, well, I thought, has some type of toxicity in it. Now, yeah, I could say that to be, I can, I could say that with a, with a sense of sureness. Um, every family has, some, and some of the families don't have that much toxicity, but every family, I think, has some type of toxicity. Like, oh, and, you know, a lot of people, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of outsiders aren't going to see it because uh, you got to be in the family to see it because you only let that flag fly when it's in the company of people you've known forever, who you love the most. Isn't that ironic? But, um, but I can deal with another family stuff. I was with um, my my boyfriend's brother and his wife and, and kids and their kids. And let me tell you, they're they were they're a great family. They're fantastic. So no family or no many members of your own family present. Another key to enjoying Christmas and having it being one of the top Christmases of your life. Do it in not America. Holy hell. I was in Ireland. I was in Dublin, Ireland. I took Kevin with us. He came. He did such a good job on the plane. I was so proud of him. There is a six, five or six hour time difference. That was a little rough, but I didn't look at what time it was in America for a while until, you know, Christmas Day. Um, so I just kind of like just ate the being tired. I hate being tired. Oh my God. I hate being tired. I hate being tired. I hate being hungry. I hate being cold. Those are my th three least favorite feelings. I'd rather be sad and terrified than tired, hungry, or cold. I know that sounds fucking weird. Um, but emotional turmoil, give it to me. Physical turmoil, mm -mm, not your girl. But um, yeah, uh, I loved it. I loved the holiday. It was amazing. We did some jogging in Ireland. And I mean, every day, we were there for six days. And I was just like, we're in fucking Ireland. It's one of the most beautiful countries in the world. And I've only been to a couple countries. So I'm just very narrow view that opinion is coming from. But I can safely say that it is a stunning, breathtaking landscape in Ireland. So I highly recommend spending Christmas in non-America with no one in your family. And also, please take this as a sign. Now, I love my, my brother and my nephew. They're my people for life. Like, I, I love them, love, 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 love them. If they were there, I still would have had the best time. I probably would have had a better time because they are my family. But I got to say, if you have a parent that rapes your inner peace and your joy. And I, and I use that word because um, it's a strong feeling that I have towards being, when I'm in the room with either of my parents, mostly my mother, uh, I, I'm not myself. I can't relax. I can't exist peacefully. I can't, everything I see is through a completely, like a terrified lens when I'm, when she's in the room with me. 
And I've tried, and I just basically ignored that feeling for a long time until I stopped talking to her. And I didn't know that feeling was there until I stopped talking to her. And I was like, what is this new? Did somebody give me a new body? No, I just stopped being in the presence of uh, a person who terrorized me emotionally. Um, and if you have a parent, um, if you have a parent who terrorizes you emotionally, and if you're not sure, talk to some of your friends about it. You know, that's what I did. I was like, hey, I think my mom's kind of, and they're like, uh, yeah, we, yeah, thank God you finally see it because we've seen it. It was weird the whole time and we didn't say anything because you're weird if we say something about your mom. And they were correct. So if you're not sure, talk to some friends that you trust about it. Talk, if you have siblings, they're probably the best people to talk to about it unless one of your siblings is in denial which they could be, but thank God mine wasn't. Um, but that could be a thing. But I got to say, if you're debating cutting a parent off, that's not an easy decision at all. And it's one that requires a lot of thought, a lot of TLC. And I just cannot tell you how happy I am that I did that. So much so that maybe I've stopped talking to them for about like two or three years. I don't even know how much time has gone by, to be honest. But it's just been so blissful that every day, I'm thankful for a lot of things every day without like meaning to like, okay, now Christina, sit down and be thankful for stuff. It just comes to me. Like I'm just, I'm very thankful for my apartment. I'm thankful for my career. I'm thankful for the friends that I have. And I'm so thankful I stopped talking to my parents. Oh, I'm so happy. I'm so happy. And so, and, and I still get very sad and I miss them so much and I love them, but all those things can exist at the same time. I'm telling you guys, if you have a parent or a family member or a fucking person in your life, Jesus Christ, if they're a friend, I hope you know to walk away. My God. But some the family thing is weird because a lot of times people are like, they're family, they're your blood. Guess what? Does that matter? No. Correct. Correct. It doesn't. Because sometimes your family treats you like, like shit. Okay. And you don't want to be near them. And I'm just so happy. I'm so happy. And here's the kicker. And this is a really cool thing. Oh, I got to tell you about this. before. <laughs> this might be more than 45 minutes. Um, I'm so happy. And I still love them so much. And I still want the very best for them. That is, that feeling is, it feels very good. Like that combination of things to feel at the same time feels so great. Because my morals and values are such that I can't, I wouldn't be able to sleep at night if I was just raging and hateful towards them, which I was for a really long time. And it did not sit well with me. I get why I was rageful and hateful towards them. I totally get it now and I accept it and whatever. But while I was being that rageful, I behind their backs and sometimes on a microphone, whoops, we got to get it out somehow. And uh, I, I didn't like it. I did not like it. But now I like that I can acknowledge that mm -mm, you're not allowed near me. And I still love you very much. And I know you tried your best, but your best, it wasn't great. And that still, still was your best, though. And a lot of moments were great. But when was the last time I recorded an episode? Oh, yeah, I did the ayahuasca. Oh, I did, when, uh, when I recorded the episode with Ollie, I had already done the ayahuasca. And I talked about the ayahuasca on Guys We Fucked at length. So I don't want to double dip here. But one thing that happened um, after I recorded with guys, if I, I scheduled a couple days after the ayahuasca thing, a craniosacral therapy session with this man uh, who I found, I was kind of like testing out a bunch of practitioners in New York 
because there's a lot of them. And I went to a bunch of appointments and I only liked one guy. And I saw, I was like, okay, you're my guy. I loved him. He was an older man. Um, He just, he feels very comfortable. And, um, and I, I scheduled a session. I think I might've talked about the cranial sacral thing on here before. Uh, but I, I scheduled a session for after the ayahuasca thing as part of like the integration. Cause that's a very important part of the ayahuasca. And so I went and had a session with him and I had a crazy breakthrough, dude. Talk about childhood trauma. So if you've ever heard of inner child work, it's the shit. It's really fun. Uh, well, it's not fun. It's it's good for you. <laughs> That's what I should say. Um, if you had a traumatic childhood, if you were abused, if you were sexually abused, basically, it's it's feeling. You know, when you can here's a, here's a really quick, very quick nutshell example. So, um, say I have something in my relationship, which is where a lot of our issues tend to tend to arise pretty quickly. In a romantic relationship, um, my partner gives me a criticism that's not harsh, that's not uncalled for, but that's lovingly given, say. And I get offended and pissed off. And I'm like, fuck you. Who do you think you are? And I'm like, my reaction to his, what he said was way bigger than what was warranted. That a lot of times is a trauma response, right? So you go, you take that example and you go to your therapist and you go, doc, fix me. And he's like, well, what happened? And you tell him, I, I got too mad at so-and-so for saying this. Like, well, wh- what did you feel in that moment? How old were you when you first felt those emotions? And then you're time traveling, okay? You're going back, you're being a little kid and you talk to the little kid version of yourself because that little kid is still inside of you because it's you. Um, And a lot of times your little kid is running the show and that's not good either. So I did inner child work mixed with craniosacral therapy, which is where a grown-up person just cradles parts of your body for 20 minutes at a time like you're a baby and it feels nice. It does something to your nervous system. It like resets it. It's really cool. But we did inner child work and he she, he was saying, we're, you know, after like kind of meditating and I was, I, I wound up in my house in Virginia. I lived there from age two to 10 and a lot of bad things happened to that house. And I, I, re, I visited that house when I was about 27 years old in Virginia, in uh, Chesapeake, Virginia. And I asked the guy, the, the, the family that bought it from my parents when we had sold the house was the same family that lived there. And I asked them if uh, I could go in the house and I, cause I knocked on the door and they said, yes, they were very gracious. They said, yes. The second I walked into that house, I couldn't breathe. I was like, and it, they don't smoke or it, it was, didn't smell bad. It didn't sm- like, it was nothing to do with the people that lived there. It had to do with like the, my memories of that house. And I asked to go to my bedroom and I went upstairs to my bedroom in my closet and I like couldn't breathe. I was just like, it was wild. But I, and at the same, as it was happening, I was like, whoa, this was weird. What, like, it was as if someone gave me a hero's dose of mushrooms when I walked into the house and I was in a living nightmare. It was wild. And then the second I got out of that house, I was like, oh my God, I can breathe again. It was so bizarre. So when I was in the house on this, with this doctor doing craniosacral therapy, I got, I was back in the house. I didn't feel those things, but I, I was taken to all the areas of my house that I had something bad happen to me and like a lot of physical abuse. And I, I, re- I recalled one of the, um, one of the moment, like one of the little memories that kind of replays in my head and I could think about it now. And it doesn't like, it doesn't really elicit an emotional reaction. Like I could just I accept it which is awesome. Woo. Oh my God. It feels so good. And you will get there kids. Um, where well, I remember one time my mom 
beat the crap out of me. She bruised my leg and I don't know why. I was a fucking kid. And when, if you're a kid who gets spanked, like I get that parents if that had it done to them that they think that's how they discipline their kids and they're fucking traumatized from their parents doing it to them. So they're like kind of probably living out their own trauma, fucking hitting the shit out of their kid. It is fucked up to hit your kid, okay? You're an adult. You're fucking 10 feet tall to this little tiny person that doesn't know what the fuck is going on, okay? I get it. Some kids can be twats, but make them go to their room, you know? Don't be a weak fuck and hit them, okay? I really think that's a weak, 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 weak move. Um, that being said, I understand that it was accepted for a very long time. So if it doesn't ring to you as fucked up, I understand why, but ask yourself, how is that okay hitting a child? Like it's so fucked up. So anyway, my mom hit me and my, my leg was bruised and I was so scared because I didn't know why she was doing this. I was maybe six and my dad came home and I was telling this memory to the doctor. He, he, you know, I was like, she, and he came home and my mom said something that chilled me to my bones. She looked at me and she goes, show your father what I did to you. And I was like, or nor abort, abort. This ain't good. Mom wants to kill you. Like that from that moment, I was like, yo, I'll, I'll trust you, bitch. I didn't think that, but I was like, oh shit, you're scary, dude. You're scary. And if you have a mom with, that gets mentally ill on a drop of a dime, you know those horror movies where all of a sudden the mother just like, she's just like, and then she just looks at you and her eyes are completely glazed over and there's not a person in her body because there's a demon in her body. That's what it felt like. It was crazy. So I recounted that memory in a very safe space. And then he was like, is little, we called, when I was a kid, I couldn't say my first name. So I just called myself Nina. And so I, she, he asked me what your little, what your little girl was named. And I said, Nina, because that was my family nickname as a kid. And he goes, is there anything Nina wants to say to her mother? And I, for the first time I'd done her child work a lot for the first time. I was like, she wants to say, get away from me. You're not allowed to touch me. You're not allowed to go near me. You can't come near me anymore. And I said it kind of like that. And I started bawling. I mean, woo, waterworks crying my face off. Because that was the first time I like stood up to my mom as a kid. And and mind you, I'm a 35-year-old woman on a on a massage table in a uh, psychoanalyst's office that does craniosacral therapy. So, you know, it took a while to get there. But um, for me to be comfortable enough to even like trust a person to lead me into this exercise. But I got to say, I felt like a million bucks after that. I really felt great. I was like, that was cool. And I felt closure. It was so awesome. So... Inner child work, cranial sacral therapy, all that shit. I recommend it, guys. And if you're working with a therapist and you don't like them, switch therapists, okay? You're supposed to like your therapist, all right? Not like you want to fuck them, but like, you, like you're supposed to feel comfortable with them. And if you don't feel comfortable with them, ask yourself if it's because what you're talking about is very uncomfortable. But if the person's making you uncomfortable, switch. It's like dating. You wouldn't just pick a person on a dating app, like that guy whose convo I just read, and go, I guess you, and then make yourself marry him. No, no one's forcing you to do that. Get a new therapist if you don't like yours. They're probably not going to be offended. And if they are offended, fuck them. That's not healthy. They probably don't want a patient that doesn't like them. I can't imagine they would. All right, guys. So the next couple of weeks, we are, I'm very excited for this. We are going to go through a book that is incredible. It's enlightening. And a lot of artists that I respect have talked about it. And I've read it a couple times before, but now I'm actually going to read it to do it. Uh, I'm talking about 
Julia Cameron's The Artist's Way, A Spiritual Path to Higher Creativity. It's The Artist's Way. Yay. We're not porn stars anymore. That was a line I stole from a sketch on SNL. So I love this book. I think it's fantastic. And I'm going to read some parts of it. Uh, Before I get, we're going to read parts from the basic principles and the basic tools. And then next week, we're going to go into like chapter one and shit that has exercises that you can do yourself. I'm obviously only reading this book, like little, little chunks of this book, but I'm starting from the beginning and I'm going to the end uh, in order. I'm not going to be flipping around because it's kind of a, a method to Julian Cameron's madness. But her argument is that, and I think she's correct, every person is an artist. Every single person has creativity. Even if you are a lawyer for I mean, a lawyer for a living, my God, there's so much creativity in that. But even if you're a mathematician, there's cre- everything you do. If you're a cashier, there's creativity in how you do what you do. Do you want to, ha- you know, you want to make your customers feel a certain way? Then put on a certain vibe, put on a certain hat, you know, a pro- put you into your process, uh, no matter what it is. If it's not a f- um, something in the f- artistic field, that's okay. I think that being creative and discovering your own creativity makes any person on this planet feel more like a person and they feel happier and more alive and they feel better. And accidentally, this book is kind of like a self-help book, I gotta say, because a lot of the creative blocks that we experience, how to get past them is through like doing some pretty much trauma work is what she's saying. She doesn't say it like that, but like, I know it's like that. So let's read a little chunk. Let's read some chunks from The Artist's Way. This is one of the beginning chapters on the basic principles. In movie terms... We slowly pull focus, lifting up and away from being embedded in our lives until we attain an overview. This overview empowers us to make valid, creative choices. Think of it as a journey with difficult, varied, and fascinating terrain. You are moving to higher ground. The fruit of your withdrawal is what you need to understand as a positive process, both painful and exhilarating. We begin to excavate our buried dreams. This is a tricky process. Some of our dreams are very volatile, and the mere act of brushing them off sends an enormous surge of energy bolting through our denial system. Such grief, such loss, such pain. It is at this point in the recovery process, and when she says recovery, she means creative recovery, that we make what Robert Bly calls a descent into ashes. We mourn the self we abandoned. We greet the self as we might greet a lover at the end of a long and costly war. Oh my God, that's so romantic. The, uh, to effect a creative recovery, we must undergo a time of mourning in dealing with the suicide of the nice self we have been making do with. We find a certain amount of grief to be essential. I love that sentence. Our tears prepare the ground for our future growth. Thank God, because your girl cries a lot. Without this creative moistening, ooh, moist, uh, we may remain barren. We must allow the bolt of pain to strike us. Remember, this is useful pain. Lightning illuminates us. How do you know if you are creatively blocked? Jealousy is an excellent clue. <laughs> Shit. Uh, am I jealous? Jealous. I mean, envy and jealous are the same, I guess. So, yeah. Are there artists whom you resent? Yeah. Fucking YouTubers that just sell out weekends at comedy clubs and they don't have any fucking material. But I still stand by that. Do you tell yourself if I could do that? Uh, I could do that if only. Do you tell yourself that you took, if only you took your creative potential seriously, you might stop telling yourself it's too late. Stop waiting until you make enough money to do something you really love. 
Stop telling yourself it's just my ego. Stop telling yourself that dreams don't matter and they are only dreams and that you should be more sensible. Fuck that shit. I'm going to skip around a little. Let's go to the basic tools. Okay, so these are the two things. There's two main things that she suggests that you do. Along with all these exercises that we'll go over. One second, I need to clear my throat. throat) Okay, I'm good. Um, so what, I'm just going to tell you about these two things and then we're going to go, but then next week we're going to actually, I'm going to give you some exercises. Okay. Okay. And if you've already done the artist way, good for you. Keep doing it. Do it again. Do it again. You fuck all that angry, whiny, petty stuff that you write down. Okay. So morning pages, morning pages. That's one of the tools in order to retrieve your creativity. You need to find it. I ask you to do this by uh, an apparently pointless process. I call the morning pages. Now, side note. I, sometimes I do them at night. I've been doing them for the past like couple of days. I don't always do them in the morning. So just you're not a bad person if you do them at night. You will do the pages daily through all the weeks of this course, and I hope much longer. I have been doing them for a decade now. I have students who have worked with them uh, nearly that long and who would no more abandon them than breathing. Ginny, a writer-producer, credits the morning pages with ins- her inspiration for her recent screenplays and clarity in planning her network specials. I'm superstitious about them now, she says. When I'm ed- I was editing my last special, I would get up at 5 a.m. to get them done before I went into work. What are the morning pages? Put simply, the morning pages are three pages, okay? Just three, three pages, and my notebook's tiny. So whatever notebook you have, just three pages. One page, front and back, you know? Well, I count one page. Oh, shit, hopefully shit. that's six pages to me. Well, hopefully you just see me like one side is a page. That's what I'm doing. That's what I say. Oops. I don't think she clarifies that. Um, about three pages of longhand writing, strictly stream of consciousness. Oh God, another morning. I have nothing to say. I need to wash the curtains. Did I get my laundry done yesterday? Blah, blah, blah. They also might, um, they might also more ingloriously be called brain drain since this is one of their main functions. There is no wrong way to do morning pages. Good. So that means you can do it at night, bitch. These daily morning meanderings are not meant to be art or even writing. I stress that point to reassure the non-writers working with this book. Writing is simply one of the tools. Pages are meant to be simply the act of moving the hand across the page and writing down whatever comes to mind. Nothing is too petty, too silly, too stupid, too weird to be included. Like literally, if you're like, this is stupid, I hate this exercise, then write that. Just write it. Because basically what she's saying, what she's getting at, is that if you clear all that bullshit in your head and your ego out on to when you write down something on a piece of paper, it does something. It's a little bit different. It's certainly different than saying it. It's different than typing it. There's something that's unique to writing something down on a piece of paper. And when you your ego is just care, you're carrying so many anxieties about so many things. When you get them down on paper, you're kind of getting them out of the way so you can actually think of better stuff. It's pretty, it's pretty cool. I've only been doing it a couple of days, but I gotta say, I get I get the point that she's that she's making. And I cannot imagine doing this for like six months, how much better your functionality is going to be and the way you think and the way you're witty and how quick you are with people. Like, watch me on this mic. I'll probably get better on this mic. Um, All that angry, whiny, petty stuff that you write down in the morning stands between you and your creativity. Worrying about the job, the laundry, the funny knock on the car, the weird look in your lover's eye. This stuff eddies through our subconscious and muddies our days. Get it on the page. The morning pages are the primary tool of creative recovery. As blocked artists, we tend to criticize ourselves mercilessly. 
Even if we look like functioning artists to the world, we feel we never do enough and what we do isn't right. I mean, I like looked out my window because I thought she was watching me when I read that sentence. We are victims of our own internalized perfectionist, a nasty internal and eternal critic, the censor who resides in our left brain and keeps up a constant stream of subversive remarks that are often disguised as the truth. Ooh, ooh, hit me where it hurts, Julia. The censor says wonderful things like, you call that writing? What a joke. You can't even punctuate. If you haven't done it by now, you never will. You can't even spell. That's true. I cannot spell, but I'm going to learn one day. What makes you think you can be creative? And on and on. Make this a rule. Always remember that your censor's negative opinions are not the truth. This takes practice. Yeah, it does. By spilling out of bed and straight into the page every morning, you learn to evade the censor because there is no wrong way to write the morning pages and a censor's opinion doesn't count. Let your censor rattle on and it will. Just keep your hands moving across the page. Write down the censor's thoughts if you want to. Note how it uh, loves to aim for your creative jugular, but make no mistake, the censor is out to get you. It's a cunning foe. Every time you get smarter, so does it. So you wrote one good play, the censor tells you that that's all there is. So you drew your first sketch, the censor says, it's not Picasso. Think of your censor as a cartoon serpent slithering around your creative Eden hissing vile things to keep you off guard. If a serpent doesn't appear to you, you might want to find a good cartoon image of your sensor, make the shark from Jaws or uh, put an X through it. Put it somewhere you tend to write or on the other inside cover of your notebook. I didn't do that, but you know, if you want to do it. Um, Morning pages will teach you that your mood doesn't really matter. Thank God, because when I wake up in a bad mood, I just feel like a prisoner to it the whole day. Some of the best creative work gets done on the days when you feel like everything you're doing is just plain junk. The morning pages will teach you to stop judging and just let yourself write. So what if you're tired, crabby, distracted, or stressed? Your artist is a child, and it needs to be fed. Morning pages feed your artist child. So write your morning pages. Three pages of whatever crosses your mind, that's all there is to it. If you can't think of anything to write, then write, I can't think of anything to write. It's true. Like, it really is that simple. Uh, When people ask, why do we write morning pages? I joke, to get to the other side. They think I'm kidding, but I'm not. Morning pages do get us to the other side. The other side of our fear, our negativity, of our moods. That's good for me. Above all, they get us beyond our censor. Beyond the reach of the censor's babble, we find our quiet center the place where we hear the still small voice that is at once our creators and our own. Okay. Okay. And then the other thing you should do now, if you live in a city, this is way easier. Take yourself on an artist date once a week. Okay. I'm not going to read the section because I'll just summarize this for you. I'll read, I'll read a little bit apart. Um, go on an artist date once a week. Uh, I'm going to start doing that. Basically you can't, you can go to a craft store. This is one of the examples she gives. Go to a craft store with $10 and just buy things and then make something by yourself at home. Like that, that's an example. It doesn't have to, it doesn't have to require money. If you live in a place where there's a lot of walking, i.e. a city, uh, it's way easier to do an artist date. Um, and you can't have anybody with you. You have to be alone. And I've pretty much been doing this anyway for the past couple of years. I love seeing plays alone. I don't see movies by myself, but I should. Um, I should see more things alone. I love seeing art by myself because then I actually 
have time to think about it and process it and ponder it without it. When there's somebody there, I always bounce what I think off of that person. And then we have a conversation with it. But I, whenever I see art by myself, there is something that I gain that's very unique because I went by myself. Um, I love probably more so seeing art with friends because I love other people's opinions of art because everybody's opinion is completely unique. Um, but take yourself on an artist date. Here, here I'll read a little bit about it. what exactly is an artist date. An artist date is a block of time, perhaps two hours weekly, especially set aside and committed to nurturing your creative consciousness, your inner artist. I think everybody, no matter what the fuck your career is, for your soul to save your soul, okay? Go take yourself out on an artistic date, like see a piece of art, whether it's a museum or a play or a concert, go by yourself, see it, and then go home. And then you can hang out with somebody. But I'm telling you, it does something to you that's very unique and very beneficial. Um, In its most primary form, the artist date is an excursion, a play date that you pre-plan and defend against all interlopers. You do not take anyone on this artist date but you and your inner artist, a.k.a. your creative child. That means no lovers, friends, spouses, children, no taggers on of any stripe. If you think this sounds stupid or that you will never be able to afford the time, identify that reaction as resistance. You cannot afford not to find the time for artist dates, okay? So next week, I'm going to get into chapter one of this fucking book, okay? Oh my God, there's so many good. And then you write a contract. I highly recommend you buy the book. And when I I own I own the audible copy of this book, I own the physical copy of this book, and I've read it multiple times. And we're going to be reading it all throughout the next two months, okay? Um, and next week we're going to do week one. I'm going to read some excerpts from week one: recovering a sense of safety. Ooh, I love feeling safe. Hell yeah! All right, how much time are we at, Michael? Like fifty two? Fifty seven. Oh, so close, so close, guys! Thank you for being here. Um, I have a bunch of shows coming up. January 20th. Wait, what? We're doing a, a live, very special live kickoff show at a television studio called MCM Studios in New York City. Um, ticket link might be out by the time this episode comes out, but save the date um, if it's not out. Uh, it's Saturday at 8.30 p.m. We're going to have John Ronson there who wrote The Men Who Stare at Goats, which is um, he, he researched this military operation where they trained people to be psychic or to kill animals with their eyes or to do all this crazy shit. We're also going to have, um, I think we're going to have Alan Steinfeld there. Um, I don't think he's emailed me back yet, but if he's available. Or we're going to get somebody that's an expert on aliens um, and who has been abducted by aliens. And then we're going to have an empath there to do live readings on the audience empath is kind of like a psychic kind of like a psychic um and then at the end we want to do like a little town hall style if anybody has any experiences or stories or abilities under the umbrella of psychedelic drugs uh, ufo aliens or um psychic powers we want to give the audience an opportunity to share their stories so it's going to be one of the best nights of your life save the date it's going to be great and then um february 9th and 10th i'm going to be at bananas in new jersey right across the river how fun is that with John Campanelli? And then I have some other tours. Oh, February. Yeah. February 14th, Los Angeles. Corinna Fisher and I are doing Guys Who Fucked at the Comedy Store. And then March 22nd and 23rd, Springfield, Missouri. I'm going to be headlining the Blue Room. Guys, follow me on social media at Christina Hutch. I love you so much. I'm talking to you next week. <laughs>